We are, from here on in, in the book of First Thessalonians. This has been a, a joy to be going through, for me at least. And uh, uh, we are now in chapter 4. We've, we've smashed through the first three chapters, and I think record pace for me. I go rather slowly. But what we've seen is that Paul is speaking to a young, a very realistic local church. And we need to see this because so often in church life, in Christianity, New Testament living, we sort of build ideals or build preferences or what churches should look like, feel like, how I should be treated. And uh, ideals just have no place in Scripture. In a fallen world, there is no such thing as an ideal situation. It's always messy. It's always uh, elements of surprise. There's, it's never what we would ideally hope for. And the book of First Thessalonians has been showing us that. It started out... Oh, well, we started out looking at its, its planting in, um, uh, in Acts chapter 17, how, how Paul went there and he preached. And what we've seen is that they were, from the very get-go, under severe attack. But they remain indestructible because as chapter 1, verse 1 of First Thessalonians tells us, that this letter is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord, Je Lord Jesus Christ. This church and every church that is a true biblical New Testament church has its source and its foundation in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and is therefore indestructible. Amen? Amen. Cannot be shaken. Cannot be broken. It will go through storms. It will go through high and uh, stormy seas, but it will not be destroyed. Jesus is building it and not the gates of hell, even with all of their powers, will stand against its assault. But chapters 1 through 3 have been Paul's reflection on that. He's sort of looking back and he's remembering the gospel preaching that planted the church. That was chapter 1. And then he looked at the, uh, the repentance and turn to Christ that, uh, that, sustain, uh, that, um, that was produced by his preaching in chapter 1 into 2. How they were preaching the gospel themselves and therefore the, the, the church was growing. Uh, we've seen that they had devotion to God through all of the affliction and therefore they were sustained. And we've seen in all of that examples for us and lessons to draw out. But I need you to see that as we come to the end of chapter 3, you sort of take a, a slight turn of approach for the rest of the, the rest of the book. And now Paul is not just looking back and reflecting and commending and reminding. Now he's looking forward and urging them. He's looking forward and teaching them lessons. He's going to be dealing with issues. Some of them are potential issues that he just needs to address before they uh, come to fruition. Others are actual issues that they're having of sin in their midst. And other parts are just sort of misapplication of theology and sort of unwise, unhelpful beliefs that they're starting to allow grow. And so he's going to be doing that pretty much for the rest of the book up until his final goodbye uh, in chapter 5, verse 28. <clears throat> so as we look here at this church plan to Paul, and he starts talking to his young, remember, six months in, uh, in the faith, these people, tops, the Thessalonian churches existed for about six months, not very old, not real mature, but again, in the spirit, born by God, purchased by Jesus Christ, secure. Nonetheless, he's writing to them, and one of the first things that he brings up to this young, energetic, fruitful church is sexual purity. And it's just the nature that every church needs to hear this. Every letter almost in, in the New Testament will, be, uh, will refer to or command and demand sexual purity. 
sexual ethics, to teach what the Christian as a New Testament believer in God should be walking in. So we're going to read now this section, and we're going to see <clears throat> how, how we should, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a church in the, in the legacy of Paul and the Thessalonians, we need to be like them in how we prioritize sexual purity. So we say this because not that when we read this, it's not as if Paul had heard of something particular happening like he did in Corinth, right? Some dude sleeping with his stepmother. Nothing like that. No, no specific situation. It actually, he actually commends them on how they're doing. But what he seems to be aware of is they're doing well, but they're not serious enough. They need reminding all the more because while you're walking okay at the moment, there seems to be a lack of urgency. And so he will give them that urgency. And this should be us. As a church, as a New Testament church, it is important not just that there's no huge scandals, there's no mass you know, sin going on, but that you have a reputation for sexual holiness and purity. That people come here and they know Hope Church cares about that, that, that beautiful uh, gift given to mankind for marriage sex. That, that they prioritize in the preaching of the word. We don't just skip over these verses. How easy and tempting that was to do. This section, you know, we can slide through it and pick up over in verse 9. How's that sound? For a preacher, tempting. No, we preach it explicitly. We even talk amongst ourselves and hold our brothers and sisters to standards. As leadership, we, as Paul commands us, discipline it quickly. And we show to the world something of God and the gospel as we seek sexual purity. So let's read our, our, our verses tonight. We'll be in chapter 4, verse 1 through to verse 8, and then we will expound it. Hear then the word of the Lord to us. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that, one, uh, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And may God bless the reading and preaching of his holy inerrant word to us. What we're going to see tonight is, uh, is real, we're just going to do part one. We're going to come back next week and look at, while this week we'll break down sanctification, the necessity of it, God's demand for it, and how sexual purity takes such an enormous role in that. Next week we will come for motivations, for uh, practical steps also in how we ought to walk in purity. But this week we will uh, uh, have part one. <clears throat> Let me show you first of all, go to verse one through three. We're going to see here the urgency for pleasing God. In the Christian life, there is an urgency for pleasing God. After that, we will look at the priority of sexual purity, and then we will see the nature of sexual sin. So first of all, the urgency for pleasing God. 
Paul introduces his theme here. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. This is his sort of verse one, one and two is the, is the general introduction to what he's going to be talking about, which is pleasing God. This is a priority, an urgency for all Christians, pleasing God. Pleasing God, you'll see first, is a family duty. He calls them brothers. This is a family word. He's not talking to them as slaves of the law. He's not talking to them as, as servants and, and those who are far off and untreasured and unvalued, but brothers in Jesus Christ, sons of the living God, right? And, of course, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters by application. But he's, he's, this is a family duty that if our Father is holy, we desire, not just that we must, but we desire to live also in holiness. We want to please him as our Father. And this is the privilege that every true Christian knows. You don't have to convince true born-again Christians that your duty on earth is to please your heavenly Father. This is born of a heart that is born of the Spirit. So first of all, it's a family duty. You'll also see that pleasing God is a command. Yes, it's a duty. And yes, it's a demand. You'll see here, he says, Brothers, we ask, that is, we request and urge you. This is a military term. We urge you. We give you urgent command. And you'll see also in verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you. And that also is a military term. We, you know what commands I gave you as your officer. But the authority here that he refers to is I'm giving military commands in the Lord Jesus. There is no higher authority that can be called on to give a demand than he who sits on the throne that is above and over every single throne. He who has all authority on heaven and earth through Paul the general, our king commands us, please God. Your life must be shaped in a way that will please God. I want to show you though <clears throat> that pleasing God in our Christian life is a walk. It's a walk. And this will have a few applications. He says, this instruction comes with authority to those in the family, how you ought to walk to please God. How you ought to walk. We, we need to think of Christianity, as, as we do, as an arduous expedition, a long journey. Christianity is not simply a decision one day and then we live how we want and one day we're sure we'll be in heaven. Christianity is not something that we, we, we tick a box, we make a decision, we think one way and then how we walk is rather irrelevant. Christianity is not simply obsessed with heaven alone. It's not as if we just think there's a destination and once you're a Christian, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Get it. And once you're there, you know, that's all you need to think about, just getting there. Actually, the way that our general here, Paul, talks to us as family members in the army is that the manner of your walking from here until you get there matters. That your general, your superior officer, the, the Holy Spirit is walking with you, giving you the marching pattern, and you must, as Paul says later, keep in step with the Spirit. Our walk the manner of walking matters. That's why we've called this series, I don't think it's up behind me, we've called this series First Thessalonians, How You Ought 
to walk. It's Paul's de uh, desire to show the Thessalonians how they must live as Christians. But as we think of Christianity as a walk, I want us to, to realize, you know, maybe, maybe you've heard people say this very deep, beautiful saying that is completely trash, uh, that, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And in, 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 in some measure, we have to agree with that. It is a relationship, right? It's not just about a destination, it's about a person. But friends, you read the Bible and you realize it's a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship with stipulations and demands and requirements. One word for that? Religion. It's a religion about a person. It's a religion based on a relationship. But yes, it is a religion. It is a walk. And so our, our whole walk with Jesus really does matter. This is a religion that has requirements in it built on God's gracious forgiveness for us. I want to say here, though, with... Um, with also, as we talk about this being a walk, this also tells us that we don't simply fall out of covenant with God, become rejected and thrown to the side with one misstep, or even a series of missteps, one worse than the other. We realize that our Christianity, this is a relationship with our King, walking continuously with Him until we come into His perfect united presence then you can be somewhat encouraged to know that a few missteps yesterday, some off-track walking whereby you received wounds and you hurt others and you walked in sin can be forgiven, can be corrected, come back onto the path and walk with him who takes every step with you. You don't need to think that, that as we look at sexual purity and holiness in general, that, that you have a few missteps in your past, and if they're of the particular bad few, then you're outside of the covenant. That as you were walking, you stepped out of step with the Spirit, and you were thrown to the dogs. No, this is a walk with a very patient shepherd. We all, like sheep, have and still do go astray time to time. And it is the, the work of God by His Spirit, the covenant that God has made to us, that He will not leave us or forsake us on this very long, arduous journey to the homeland. To me, at least, that is very encouraging to know. This is a walk, not simply a, a, a four-second performance which we are, we, which we are uh, uh, judged by. So, Paul says that walking with Christ must be pleasing to God and there is much room for improving. Just think about where you sit at the moment. Paul comes to you, assesses your life, maybe walks alongside you. Maybe Timothy comes and spends a month with you and then writes back to the Apostle Paul like he did here. Runs back to the Apostle Paul with a, with a list of how things, you, things you're doing well, things you're not doing great. How would that look on for you? Well, the encouragement is that wherever you are, maybe really quite weak and needing much growth, maybe going strong wherever you are because this is a journey, this is a walk. Look at what he says at the end of verse 1. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. If you're going well, great, improve. We looked at this the last few weeks. There is always room for improvement. And for those who are doing quite poorly, be encouraged. God, through his scripture and by his spirit, in the family of the church, will bring you to do so more and more. He will sanctify you. And so he says just next, <clears throat> for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And here we come to our next section. This is the will of God, your sanctification. 
Walking to please God, let's just bring in some systematic theology for us, right? This one's for free, giving you a seminary for free here. Systematic theology, when we talk about our growth in holiness, we call it sanctification, coming from the word to mean, uh, to mean holy, to be made holy, set apart for God. As you develop and you start, you know, you read your, your Grudem systematic and your Hodge systematic and you even crack open some of Sprawl and you, you dig into frame, okay, and you start reading that and you realize, uh, uh, and you, you know, you, you read that section of the walk in the spirit after justification, you read sanctification, that's what it means, the walk in holiness. <clears throat> now, he says in verse 3 there that this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is a, here's my, my short brief, entry-level definition of sanctification for us. This is the process of God, so it's God's work, the process of God working in you to bring you free from sin and more like Christ in your thoughts, affections, actions, and lifestyle. A few things about, uh, about sanctification. Sanctification starts at regeneration. It begins its process, and it is a process, but it begins at your salvation, your justification, we'll say. That, that legal declaration that God made, makes of you by faith in Christ's finished work, you are righteous before the law of God. You are accepted through adoption into the family of God, and thereby begins the process of your growth in holiness. Now, first couple of days of your Christian walk can be quite exciting. Very, maybe you've had one of those, those uh, experiences, you were saved and, and life changed. Or maybe you're like the rest of us, the most of us, who you look back and you just said, did it start? Is there anything else supposed to happen? I'm still pretty weak, pathetic, and, and foolish, right? That was at least uh, my experience. And thinking, uh, thinking of this, we, we learn, it started. Whether you experienced it or not, God was beginning that. Maybe, maybe the first steps of sanctification is just realizing how slow your sanctification took to really get going, but it worked. I remember I was helping my father-in-law once build a, a solar panel thing. Not a technical dude. Can't really help out with that much. But I, I, was, I was given the job of carrying the batteries. I'm a bit of an oaf, so I got carrying the batteries. That was my job. Putting them in place, and he would do all the technical stuff. And, and as I was carrying them, there was a little cap on one of the, the battery things, and he had said, make sure they're all real tight, because battery acid gets on you equals bad. Don't do that. And uh, so I'd forgotten to put the thing on you. You know where this is going. And I'd been carrying it and sort of uh, uh, had a bit of a, a tumble on some of the rocks, kept my balance, but had been splashed up my front with all this battery acid. And I got to where I was going, put it down, and I realized it's not burning at all. I've seen the cartoons. This splashes on you. You're supposed to writhe around in pain and develop boils, and your head explodes quite quickly. Battery acid is nothing. What are you talking about? Quick sprinkle on my hands, washed off the dirt, and uh, kept on going. To me, it didn't seem like the process had started whatsoever. You get battery acid on you, it doesn't burn, it doesn't corrode anything. Until about three hours later, I'd gotten to get in my car, and uh, I had my seatbelt on. I just put my seatbelt on, and I went to tighten it, and I grabbed a bit of my shirt, and my shirt just fell apart in my, in my hands. So this tiny bit of force pulling on it just shredded my shirt to pieces. It wasn't because I'm enormously strong. It was because, and underneath, I was actually quite red. And I realized this process had started, even though very early on, the, the immediate signs were not there. Uh, and yet, for sure, whether I had seen it or not, the process had started and soon enough becomes very evident. 
This is the promise to every one of us. Sanctification, it's like battery acid. You bet it hurts. It does. It's a painful process and often invisible at first, but the promise of God is that it is working. It is occurring. Push into it. Press more and more into it, unlike you would press more and more into battery acid. They're all analogies break down somewhere. But let's start here. It begins at generation, regeneration. As the Holy Spirit comes into you, he cannot but fulfill the promises of God to bring you into his likeness of more and more holy. Secondly, this is something that continues progressively. I'm going to say again, sanctification is never as quick as you wish it would be. It is not instant like we wanted, right? We, we want to be made holy before the Lord in our justification. That's positional holiness. And then immediately holy in my life, my actual lived out holiness. Bring that to 100% from the beginning, Lord, please. But no, it's a slow process throughout your life. There are periods of greater growth in more rapid succession as you devote yourself to the means of grace and slower periods as you are less intentional, less active and zealous towards God's means. Nonetheless, progress. What this tells us is that we can never say in this life, while you're in this body, I am free of sin. None of us can say that old era of sinless perfectionism, saying that we have reached the goal. I am now in perfect image of Christ. I have no lack whatsoever in the full glory of what God commands. No, we are always fighting Sin. Sin will always be among you and within you. But we must secondly keep ourselves from ever saying is getting to a point in your life or in your relationship with sin where you take that particular sin you've had for years since you're a kid, it started then and ever, put it into the category of unbeatable, this one will be with me forever. While we know truly we will always have some sin and never be able to claim perfection, we can never, if the glory of the power of God by the Spirit lives within us, we can never say, I don't have what it takes in my armory to defeat this sin. Not true. Every sin can be beaten by the power of the Spirit using the means of grace in our life. That is true. Though we know in the background I'll never attain perfect perfectionism. Perfect perfectionism? Yeah, let's go with that. <clears throat> But thirdly, I want to say, this is encouraging. This is very encouraging. One day you will die. It's the best day in the Christian's life because you leave behind the sinful body. You leave behind the world of temptation and shame and you are brought into God's presence, perfect never to sin again. Is that going to be a good day? The rest of your families and friends will mourn and we will miss you, but for you, you close your eyes in death. You open your eyes on the shores of glory in heaven with Christ and never again feel that burning conscience, that broken heart, that guilt against the law because of your actions. That is going to be a good day. What a day. We look forward to it. But let me say also this, as, as we defined sanctification earlier, it is a process of God working in you, two parts here, to bring you free from sin and more like Christ in your thoughts, affections, actions, and lifestyles. The, the reformers, since the reformers through the Puritan age and in all good systematic theologies, you're going to see that they break down, and in the good confessions and catechisms of the faith, you'll see they break down what are the two parts of sanctification. And they answer it by saying that part one is death to sin. 
The Holy Spirit coming in you, giving you a hatred for sin and an ability by the Word of God to put that sin to death. But part two is bringing you life to righteousness. Number one is putting sin to death. And number two is bringing righteousness to life. So that you're not just left in a sinless, you know, slightly less sinful state and then in some kind of vacuum, well, what do I do with my mind, my body, my affections now? but actually bringing us to righteousness. One is called mortification, big fancy word, meaning murder, kill. Mortification is the process of putting to death. And the other, vivification, the, the, theolo the theologians call it. Vivification is the process of coming to life. So we pursue both, the putting to death of our sin and the bringing to life righteousness in our life. Now, let us be reminded that as we talk about sanctification. It is not an option. Not for those who will see the Lord. As we've already established, the only righteousness by which we are accepted into the glorious presence of God and into his covenant relationship is the righteousness of Christ. Not that you've obeyed enough, not that we've done enough, but that Christ has been enough for us. And yet, Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, in the, the speaking of the process of sanctification, that without this sanctification, no one will see the Lord. There is no such thing as the unsanctified Christian by faith, because that is the family emblem on, a, on every family, family member of God, holiness. <clears throat> Let us keep going. Let's look at because then he goes to the priority, right? What's the, the number one thing that you need to talk about if you're going to talk about sanctification? The apostle gives us a, a, a good reminder here that, no surprise, sexual sin is one of the first things to bring Christians down. It's the first thing that needs to be addressed in a church, even though there's no particular problem among them. Paul's going to address it as a priority. This is partially because in the Thessalonian world, you know, in this ancient Greco-Roman world, it was filled with the normalization of sexual immorality. That they weren't in sort of a privileged, blessed position like we are to sort of have a few thousand, couple of thousand years behind us of, of westernized growth on the Judeo-Christian worldview. They were deeply built in sin and sexual immorality. Thessalonica had a, uh, had a temple there. There was a, um, a god uh, called Kabiri, right? This, this pagan god of Thessalonica. And she was worshipped through the processes of sexual immorality. That was worship to her. That was encouraged widespread. Also, the, the Greek gods there, not the, uh, they had, um, oh yes, yeah, sorry, in the Greek, <laughs> this one's weird. Uh, in the Greek uh, culture, they would have, right, imagine this, you've got a guy who's middle class, he's got a mistress on the side who he can go on dates with, enjoy intellectual conversation with, especially then go and visit the philosophers, your mistress, and obviously have, uh, have uh, emotional, beautiful, relational sex. Then you've got uh, the prostitute who you can go and visit on your off days while your mistress is not available. Uh, and also in their culture, they had the allowance for slavery and sexual slavery so that you could own someone as a concubine in your house who had no freedoms. And then their wife was mostly just the gal who watched the home and raised the kids. How extremely demeaning of women in that culture. How, how extremely sinful of men in that culture. And yet that's who Paul's writing to. 
Christians just recently saved out of that. Maybe Christians, as they received this letter just days ago, had been living in that before they were converted. This is a culture flourishing in their sin. But we need to realize, and, and, and you know, if you read your Bible and you think biblically, sexual sin is not just something that happened, you know, back in Lot's day in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a people group problem. It's not a time problem. It's not an education problem. It's a human problem. Every one of us in, in God's good, glorious image were made with sexual organs to, to fulfill a sexual uh, 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 gift given to human beings in marriage. All of us with that innate desire have been so corrupted by sin that the beauty of what God has given and does not get embarrassed about or hide away from, but he encourages marital intimacy, yet that is twisted and perverted in what becomes a, re, uh, a reality in every culture, every time, every place. So Paul says here, as in the same breath, while the will of God is your sanctification, let's define that, that, each of, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is, here's my definition for this, sexual immorality is every form of sexual images, actions, and thoughts that are not directed to and with your spouse with whom you are married and is of the opposite sex. Every form of sexual thought, activity, action, relationship, and behavior that is other than towards and with your wife or husband who is of the opposite sex in biblical marriage. And so this will include for us anything uh, uh, we see that everything else is condemned in Scripture. Every other version of relationship, every other um, um, uh, example has an example in Scripture where it is either being punished by God or explicitly commanded against by God. The only sexual relationship uh, commanded to and blessed and smiled on by God is that that we see right from the beginning was given by God. Male and female, leaving family, coming together, becoming one flesh, remaining faithful to one another. Any other form is condemned under sexual immorality in Scripture. This is cheating on husband or wife. This is fornicating or having sex outside of marriage and before marriage. Touching with the hands. Uh, thoughts that we have in pornography or sending of explicit pictures. Rape in or out of marriage, whatever that looks like in all of these things, let's name them specifically, friends. We encourage, demand each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, by Paul's authority, command the repentance of and turning away from, abstaining from those things. We must see this as an urgent priority in our sanctification. You can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> Gone from memory here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. <clears throat> no, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. <clears throat> In this section, Paul is commanding and demanding his church, which is the city he's living in as he writes the Thessalonian letter, he writes to them, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. 
Don't ask it questions. Wonder if this is too far. Flee from it. Run away. Flee from sexual immorality. And it gives us this cryptic explanation. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Quite strange. I mean, all sins are inward. All sins begin in the heart. But what he means is that the most sin, all other sins sort of are outward focused, stealing against other people, murdering other people. There are all these things that happen outward, whereas sexual immorality connects in such a deep spiritual form and does an inward corruption. It is spiritual suicide. It is this opening of the self to sin and the destruction of oneself. There is a uniqueness to sexual sin that none, that no other sin can quite compare to. And so he says, flee from it. Don't bring that into the temple of God. Don't bring that filth and spray it on the altar of God that has been sanctified for his Holy Spirit. We are called better than that. We must abstain as a priority as the people of God from sexual immorality. Let's look, chapter uh, verse 4 onwards, the nature of this sin, uh, <clears throat> the nature of sexual sin. He says that, you, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's got a few different, uh, two different translations that we'll look at next week about how that can come around. But he says that you should control in a sanctified sexuality, be in holiness and honor. And so we see sexual immorality is the opposite of that. It's not holiness, and it's not honor. It's shameful. It's dishonor, and it's done against others and against self. It is, as he goes on, he says, Be holy, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So therefore, sexual purity is, uh, sorry, sexual sin is therefore the very, uh, in passions of lust. Secondly, it's like the Gentiles. And thirdly, it's born from an ignorance of God. Let's look at this for a bit. God's design for his people is honorable, uplifting sexuality in marriage. It does not say abstain from sex. Hallelujah, amen. It does not say that. It says abstain from sexual immorality. Therefore, as Hebrews 13 tells us, the solution to that is Honor the marriage bed. May, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Run to it in God's uh, design and, and uh, ways. Go there, be blessed, be holy and honorable and beautiful in this, right? That is a, an encouragement and command of God. And yet, sexual sin is just the opposite. He says here, uh, verse 5, do not be in the passions of lust, like the Gentiles. The passions of lust. Passions talks about uh, uh, desires, uh, sorry, uh, uh, things that carry you away, right? Things that you get carried away with coming up from within. And lust talks about something that you desire. So you sort of see an active and passive relationship here. Your lusts are things you want, and passions are those things that take you further than you ever wanted to go. And this is the picture. It's sort of similar to, to playing with fire. You may, you may like the brightness, you may like the heat, you may sort of like that, that energy you get from the danger of it, but be careful, you sit on petrol canisters. There is this 
active part that you want to play with it, but there's also a passive part that it will get to a point that you cannot control and it will take you into shame, dishonor, and self-destruction. Do not do that. It's sort of like you, you want to play in the, in the lion's pen. It seems like, a, like a, 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 a stirring activity to sort of do that. Who can, who can get closest? Who can run up and hit the ball? Right? There's this element that we want to step into it, but a warning, it will get ugly very quickly. Similar, you can think of the, the picture of slavery. They are, uh, reading the, the biography of David Jones, a missionary to Madagascar, he helped there to end the slave trade. But he tells a story in his biography, uh, it is told a story of him, that there was a, a, a local who knew that there were slave traders from, the, from the, the, the island just off of Africa. There was slave traders who belonged to the, to the tribes themselves who were sort of getting paid off by the French to come in, man-steal, and send them off to the European nations for money. And these people knew not to go into those areas, and yet somebody was foolish enough, curious enough, intrigued enough to get close, sort of give in to that little bit of desire, and they were taken, stolen, and gone where they never knew and were never seen again. There's a picture for us in these words. Do not give in that little bit which will put you within the realm of being stolen and enslaved by sin. It will get bad quickly. And I don't think I need to explain that anymore for every Christian to know the reality of their own experience in that. <clears throat> Sexual sin tempts closely and takes you far, far away. It labors day after day to tempt you. Sin remains in your body and it is a constant fight that will overcome you if you are not, as John Owen said, continually, every day, making it your practice to kill sin by the Spirit with the Word. This is our constant requirement. So friends, my, my command and encouragement is to fight your sinful desires so that they do not overcome, ruin your reputation, your witness, and your experience in the Christian life. And, 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 and in a particularly practical way for this is that, as Paul said, the Gentiles, right, the non-Christians, those living under pagan deities, they're doing this because they don't know God. You see the connection here between the covenant relationship and knowledge of God and sin. Sin is foolishness. Sin is lie. Sin is deception. There is nothing about sin that makes sense or that speaks the truth of the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, you, you can turn there if you want. Ephesians 4, I'm going to read a few verses. Ephesians 4, 17 through to 22. <clears throat> and Paul, writing again, makes a few very interesting points about sin and the Christian. Ephesians 4, verse, uh, verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, right, similar language, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Similar word. Before he said those Gentiles who don't know God. Of course it makes sense to live in that way. They don't know him. Well, here he says they have futility, uselessness, baselessness of their minds. Now listen to all of the ignorant language that he uses here. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice every kind of impurity. Well, that's not the way that you learned Christ. Verse 21, 
assuming that you have, now listen to the emphasis on knowledge and truth, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Sexual immorality, maybe more than any other sin, is a deceptive sin. Just as Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden and promised them something he could never deliver. Likeness to God. Power, knowledge, experience of joy that you've never known before. He had no power, authority, or ability to ever give them that. And sin does the same today. Sexual sin promises you what it does not have the ability to give. Fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy. And yet once it is taken a bite of, when you, once you walk into it, you realize it was an empty promise. It does not bring joy but depression. It does not bring satisfaction. It only deepens my desire for sin. It does not bring fulfillment. It brings emptiness and shame. This is the deceitfulness of sin. And therefore, if we're to fight sin, it's not enough to just white knuckle, beat yourself up, hit yourself when you sin, set reminders of how much of a depraved wretch you are. That's not enough. You need the glorious knowledge of Jesus Christ in the gospel for you. And so let me say here that your, your, your fight against sin is a well-equipped, truth-built knowledge of God. You need to have a deep, functional, practical, true belief about God, about man, about your own heart, about the punishment that comes, right? Yes, be reading good books, live in the Bible, as Spurgeon said, be among the preaching of the word, always devouring a mind renewed after Christ's likeness. You will give in to sin if, like Adam and Eve, you are ignorant of the truth. It will lie to you about its consequences if you do not know the truth about its consequences. It will lie to you about what joy you might find if you do not have a well-built answer to what joy there is never to be found in sin. It will lie to you about the nature of God and his fatherly requirements of you and how the gospel doesn't really need you to walk in any obedience. It will lie to you in those ways. You will believe it if you have not prior Put on the armor of God, including a knowledge of this gospel. So build yourselves up in your mind that it might practically form how you live and walk and protect yourself so that in the day of temptation, you can stand firm and fight. This is the call of our king and our general. A great soldier in the fight was named Thomas Brooks. He lived back in the 1600s. He was a Puritan writer. I'm going to read for you a section now what he spoke of Christians fighting lusts. It was written back in 1669 in a great uh, 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 book that he wrote. He says this, It is certain that sin is more afflictive to a Christian soul than all the losses, crosses, and troubles and trials that he meets in the world. True grace would not have one Canaanite left in the Holy Land. Right? He's thrown back to the Old Testament. They let the Canaanites remain, and so it was their downfall. He says, true grace of God in your life 
would not let one Canaanite be left in the Holy Land. He would have every Egyptian drowned in the Red Sea of Christ's blood. I hate every false way, says Psalm 139, verse 24. Saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his favorite lusts as a slave is willing to leave his chains. As a prisoner longs to leave his dungeon, or a beggar desires to leave his rags for riches. A sincere heart had much rather be rid of his sins than of any of his sufferings. Yes, he would much rather be rid of the least sins than of the greatest sufferings. Don't think I can say it better than Thomas Brooks. That must be our view. Let us walk in what Paul has commanded here to us. Let me encourage you, is it not the sweetest, best, grandest, greatest news to every one of us that in this talk of obedience, which is necessary, and talk of sanctification, which is also necessary, you are not accepted, forgiven, or loved because of your ability to fight sin. Who of us would be left in the love of God if that were the case? You and I are not accepted because we have been pure enough because we have a, a virginity to bring to Christ that is impressive. We have hearts that are pure enough that we can bring to Him. But we come because wherever we are on the spe spectrum of obedience to the, the commands against sexual immorality, every one of us has fallen too far short in mind and action to be accepted on that basis. But Christ was brought as that pure one to redeem for Himself a whore, you and I, and make her into a beautiful pure virgin. Friend, in the sight of God the Father, because of the work of Christ, if you have accepted his death in your place, his life in your place, and his resurrection from the dead, if you've accepted that by faith, you before the Lord, even if today you are unsaved and sit in a pattern of life of sexual immorality, you by faith are washed clean, your shame gone, your sin forgotten, punished in Christ for every impurity. It's our joy to know that I have a fuel to go on in this fight. I have the energy to go on marching and fighting in this war because my own obedience is not the basis of my acceptance. Friends, throw your faith today on Jesus Christ. Do not rest on your own ability. Do not take joy in your own obedience to impress God, but look to Christ there on the cross as everything that you deserved. Look to Christ in heaven, glorious and righteous as the exact way that the Father sees you and pursue this implication of sexual purity. Let me pray. Father God, we, we see in your word a, a law, a commandment, a demand that we can never, never have, never will fulfill in our own ability to the standard that you require. Lord, even now saved through the blood shedding sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, even now saved, we have not become perfect like we wish we could be. We are still plagued with temptations, sin, guilt, and fallings. But God, you have promised in the, in the eighth chapter of Romans that Jesus was given to do what the law weakened by our own flesh was never able to do, and that is produce obedience, the fulfilling of its righteous commands in our lives. I pray, God, among those who are gathered and those who listen both now and later, would you assure us, God, that we are never allowed to blaspheme you to the degree of saying that we will just put up with sin until we die. God, we must 
and we can walk in true victory. And every failing is only because we do not take you up on your promises. We do not rely on you like we need in those moments of need. Encourage us, Lord, that in moments of temptation, we can and must come to your throne room for prayer to receive help and strength. Would you, God, weed out of our lives those foxes, those, those poisons, those gangrenous wounds that are in our hearts of sexual sin. God, remove it from our lives. Bring repentance to us because we know the truth. We know the God of truth. We know Jesus Christ who is truth himself. And all of these other desires fade away. Lord, may you save souls tonight in the preaching of your word. May Jesus, may you, may, you, may you bring souls out of death and bring them to yourself. Give them life. Give them faith. Add them to our number. God, we love you. We desire more holiness and trust that you can work it in us. We thank you, God. And in all this, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.